Do you have a hard time accepting God's acceptance? You see, it's so much easier for us to think in terms of achievement. That's how it seems that we're just naturally wired. We're all working so hard in our lives trying to be enough, whatever that means. (laughs) We're all striving for enough. We feel like that we're not quite there yet, and we need to work just a little harder to get to this place of being enough. But here's what we can define. We definitely feel and understand what it means to feel like we're not enough, but it's hard for us to define what being enough actually is. But if you ask someone, hey, what does it mean to be not enough? Well, I can tell you how that feels. I can unpack that. I can describe that because I often feel that way. So it makes it hard at times for me to understand the grace of God. It makes me uh, have this odd interaction, understanding this unmerited favor, this truth that I didn't do anything to deserve this or earn this, and this truth that I could not do anything to deserve it or earn it. It doesn't compute with me because I'm so conditioned to being not enough. I'm so conditioned to being insufficient, and now all of a sudden I'm accepted, I'm loved, I'm welcomed, and it's really, really hard for us often to get into that mindset, which is why it's so much more attractive for us to bounce right back into this ideology of works, this ideology of earning something from God or trying to somehow get qualified and deserve it on our own merit. It's natural for us to think in terms of a karma-based system where we think if I do more good than bad, then I'm a good boy or a good girl. And if I have done bad, well, if I just simply do enough good to offset that, well, then I'm maybe, maybe I'm finally enough. It's easier for us to understand that than it is for us to go, no, it's not based on your performance. It's not based on whether you were good or bad. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And for us to think about depending on the righteousness of another, it requires you and I to have to humble the way that we see ourselves and the way that we think. It requires humility because it forces us to think about needing to depend on someone else and not needing to depend on ourselves or on our works. This is exactly why it was difficult for the Galatians to receive this message from Paul and then easily pivot over to this message of the Judaizers. The Judaizers presented something to them in Galatia that they were like, hey, this is more conducive to the way you naturally think. This is more conducive to the way you naturally want things to go so you can somehow feel like you're finally enough. And it's almost like dangling like a carrot in front of you. It's like this this, this false thing that you're never going to really achieve, but yet when you feel like you're getting close to it and you feel like you're doing a good job, it moves just a little bit. And that's often how it can feel if we're looking to our works and to our own merit and behavior to somehow justify ourselves in the eyes of God and feel like we have deserved or earned something from God in the process. You see, this impacts the way that we see everything in the world. It impacts the lens that we look at everything through. And this is exactly why the gospel of Jesus is the remedy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy. 
Let's go over to Galatians chapter 3. I know last week we went through chapter 3. You don't have to remind me. I'm well aware, okay? Some of you got real nervous. You're like, whoa, we just did chapter 3 last week. I know, I know, it's okay. Does that mean the sermon's going to be longer? He's going backwards. Thought we were doing four this week. I'm not even thinking any of those thoughts. Why is he wasting time with this? <laughs> Galatians chapter 3, let's back up and let's look at a section that we looked at last week, verse 23. Paul says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, I want us to focus in on this passage of scripture because I want you to understand that Paul was addressing something very specific here. Paul was addressing a cultural practice within the Roman Greco culture of that day that was very much the uh, prevalent culture in Galatia. And so these are not Jewish people. They didn't grow up with Jewish customs and Jewish understanding. They grew up with a very much Roman understanding, a very Greco-Roman understanding, and all of the practices that would go along with that. And so in this specific area, it's interesting that Paul explains the purpose of the law because he just spent all this time beforehand saying, you're not under the law. And then they're like, okay, but the Jews are telling us to follow the law of God, the law that Moses wrote and what we've been practicing for hundreds of years. So now all of a sudden we're being told that the law is something we don't need to be as concerned with in that regard. So what was the purpose of the law? And Paul unpacks the purpose of the law and he uses this language which they would have been familiar with. He tells them the law acted as your guardian and he then says until you came uh, uh, he says here that you uh, verse 24 the law was our guardian until Christ came so there was a shift here and he was speaking to them in language they would understand because Paul likened the law to a child's pedagogue in Greek culture and this person was either a slave or a free man who was employed by a family for the purpose of guarding the child, educating them, and training them in childhood to prepare them for adulthood. Now understand, this person would go everywhere with the child. This person would take them to school. This person would educate them outside of school. This was kind of like a live-in homework helper. You know, this, uh, this person would make sure that this child grew up and understood because the parents we're not as involved. And I know that that kind of blows our minds because of the way we think in our culture. But remember, this is not our culture. This is their culture. And Paul is speaking to their culture and to their day. And he's writing to the Galatians with their understanding and their mindset. And so this pedagogue would spend all this time, and the child would become very attached to the pedagogue. And uh, oftentimes, you would see even after this child became an adult, they would honor their pedagogue because it actually became like their their parent they loved this person because mom and dad weren't very involved with the child's life and here's why because child mortality rates 
were really high during those days. Literally, one out of every two children would not make it past the age of 10 years old. And so the parents' idea was, let's just not get too attached, all right? Let someone else raise the child. We'll keep them at arm's length, and we'll let them be raised properly. And then, get this. This is, this is really interesting. The child would become an adult when the father of the child believed that the child was ready. Children in that day would walk through the marketplace out in public. Anytime you went out in public, you would wear your toga. And so it was a pretexas is what they called it, where they would wear this toga indicating that they were a child. And the way that signified that is that this toga had a purple cloth across it. And they would also wear a piece of jewelry that they believed would ward off evil spirits because they're trying to help their child to stay alive. And they thought maybe these evil spirits were causing their children to die because they were just dying one out of every other kid. And so these kids would all have these golden necklaces on, and they would all have these white togas with a purple sash on it, indicating this child needs a guardian, indicating this child needs to be protected, indicating this is a minor. Even if that child didn't look like a minor, if they were wearing that toga, it signified to the whole community. So imagine it like this. It's like a big neighborhood watch program, okay? That's really what it was like. So if you saw a, a minor on their own, you would know this person needs protected. And so the community would help protect this child because we're all trying to prevent these kids from dying or from bad things happening to our children. And so this was a public way to acknowledge this and also let people know that this person is not available to date and marry. <laughs> it would also let you know this person cannot vote. This person should not be involved in business conversations. This person should not be uh, allowed to go to the Senate. This person should not be allowed in certain areas. And so it was kind of like your public ID and your neighborhood watch program. And so they would go around with their uh, pedagogue, and they would always be wearing their toga until the father would declare that they were ready. Now, normally, for young girls... It was around the age of 14 or so when the father would deem that they were ready to be married. And for young men, it wasn't until they were around 18 to 21 years old, somewhere in that range, that the father would say that the child was ready. So the child would become an adult when the father said. And the ceremony of the boy or the girl becoming an adult would happen every year on March 17th in a festival called Liberalia. The families would throw a big party, and they would have alcoholic drinks called libations in a festival called Liberia to honor the god Liber, and this is what they would do. And it was like this fruitfulness coming of age ceremony. It would happen every March 17th. The child would trade in their, their toga praetexta, and the father would give them their toga virilius, or their white adult toga. Now, when the father gave them this white adult toga, what this meant was the child is now an adult, and they can do business, they can get married, they can vote as a Greek citizen in that toga when they would go out in public. They were considered at that time a free person, and also at this festival, the father, get this, would officially adopt the child. Until this age, until this ceremony, the father and the mother had the right to disown the child. Once the child was adopted, and once the child was publicly declared an heir through this coming-of-age ceremony at this festival on March 17th, the father could disown the child. But once the father publicly gave them this toga, they're in. 
and the father cannot legally disown the child as an heir. Everyone knows this is the heir, this is my son, this is my daughter, and then they put the toga on them, and now they're declared as an, an adult and an heir and a free person because a child was considered like a slave. And I, I know this is hard for us, okay? Because when we think of slaves, we think of labor, like forced labor. And in that day and time, that's not necessarily what was meant by that word slave. Because we have so many negative connotations to that word, and, and rightfully so with our context. But that wasn't so of them. All the word slave simply means is just, in their context, was a person without rights. Someone who is being guarded. Someone who is, has limited rights. And a child was looked at the same way a slave was looked at, which is why this pedagogue would be assigned to them to help them to mature. And it was the pedagogue's job to then help this child be raised until the father said, I think you're ready to be an adult. And March 17th, every March 17th comes around, you're going, Am I get, do I get to be an adult? You know, do I get to be an adult? You know, do I get to drive the chariot, get my license? You know, like whatever. And so the father would say, yes, you're ready. And then the father would have this ceremony on March 17th. And so this is what would happen. They would adopt the child. And there's two different words for adoption in that Greco-Roman culture. There's the word adragatio and adoptio. One of them means adoption in the sense of how you and I think of it, where we think of this person is not my blood relative, this person has now been brought into my family, and that was a common practice of their day because a lot of children would die, and if you didn't have a male heir apparent, they would adopt someone from another uh, who, who either didn't have a child or someone that you wanted to make your heir, and you would adopt them in this same way, and you would bestow all these rights of an heir on them, Okay. Or there was this other word that just simply meant to declare your child as a free person and you're choosing them. You're saying, I am proud that this is my child and I'm going to publicly acknowledge them as an heir, all right? This adoption by the father meant that now the father was going to take over any necessary mentoring from that point that the pedagogue um, was not to do. So now it's like, now I'm going to teach this child the family values. Now I am, or this adult rather, now I'm going to teach them how to truly be a man or uh, the mother would teach the girls how to be a woman and it would change. So now the parents are getting involved at this level and the pedagogue loses his job. <laughs> like they're done. But oftentimes the child so loved the pedagogue that they would still maintain relationship. Matter of fact, there's a lot of ancient writings about how a lot of people during that day and time would honor their pedagogues, especially like wealthy people. As they got older, they would take care of them and things like that. So there's a loving relationship there. This adoption meant that the father would take over. The pedagogue was unnecessary. The father would adopt the child and declare them as heir. And now um, they could not be disinherited at that point, and they now have the inheritance. But at this celebration, the father would declare this child is a free adult. This child is an heir and forever part of this family. So when Paul says to the Greeks, listen to this. When Paul says to the Greeks, when he says this to the Galatians, put on Christ. He's telling them to put on Christ like you put on your toga virilius when you entered into adulthood. Because God the Father, through your faith in Christ, has adopted you. He calls you an heir with Christ. You obtain this faith in Christ to gain access to the Father, not by your works, not, becoming, not by becoming a Jewish practitioner. He was connecting them 
with their cultural understanding. And so when he tells them the purpose of the law was like a guardian, that's going to make sense to a Galatian. They're going to go, oh, you mean like my guardian that I grew up with, my pedagogue. You're, gonna, you're likening that to a, to a Greco-Roman pedagogue. You're saying, yes, it's a guardian. Until it was time for me to transition into this freedom that I now have in Christ. So with that in mind, let's read this. Because the context helps us to understand the impact of the gospel here to the Galatian church. Galatians chapter 4. Told you we'd get there. Verse 1. He said, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you understand the impact of what he's saying here? Oh man, I get goosebumps right now just thinking about this. Because he's using this fatherly language and attaching it to the creator of the universe. He's using this Abba word, which literally translates as daddy, God. It's this, it's this childlike cry to God. You're my father. You're my Abba. And he's saying the father, Abba, God has chosen you, has adopted you, has declared you his own, and he calls you his son, he calls you his daughter, and he calls you a joint heir with Christ through your faith in Jesus. This is what he's saying. You are accepted by God, and you did nothing to earn it or deserve it. You did nothing to qualify yourself in your own strength. It was when the Father appointed it was when the Father chose to send His Son to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And now through faith, there is a way for you to now be brought into something, declared, chosen, adopted, forever this son, this daughter that's in right standing with God. And so now, you're not only a son and a daughter, you're an heir and a joint heir with Christ. This is what he even said in chapter 3 at the end. He said, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's offspring and you're heirs according to the promise. This is something that the Galatians would have understood very clearly because you may not be accepted by your earthly father. I know there's a lot of tension in relationships with dads oftentimes, especially in adulthood. It influences, it affects, and it shapes the way that we see the world, the way that we interact with other people. And there can be a lot of wounds associated if you have an unhealthy or had an unhealthy relationship with your earthly father. But God, our father, has adopted you, has chosen you. You did nothing and you could never do anything to earn it or deserve it. That's grace. That's the good news of the gospel. 
is that he's the one who gets all the glory. You can't get the glory for any of this because it's not supposed to be you receiving glory. It's his glory reserved for him and him alone. And now we are part of something that he has done all by himself. And now we rest in that. We celebrate that. We serve him in response to that. We have good works to glorify him in response to that. Not to earn that from him. Not to try to deserve that from him. But in response to his goodness. Let's keep reading verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So here's what he's saying. Formerly, he said, before you were accepted by God, you were enslaved. So you've already been a person who, who just gave up your rights. You relinquished your rights as a slave. You became a slave to things that were not God's. And he's speaking specifically to their worship of the things uh, to do with astrology and all of those things. Actually, some of those words there are actually translated stars. And it's speaking about a lot of the uh, astrological signs and things that, you know, people use today for like horoscopes and whatnot. I said, you were enslaved to that. Like, you let that determine your life. You let the, 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 the moon's position and the sun's position and the position of the stars, you let that dictate your life. You were enslaved to that. That, that was something that you gave up your rights to be enslaved to your whole life. So formerly, before you knew God, you were enslaved to things and that weren't really a God at all, but you had made it a God. And so he's saying, this is who you were before Christ. He said, but now, verse 9, but now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, which is the better thing. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So here's what Paul is communicating to them. He's saying, before you knew Christ, before you were adopted into this family, and he's using that familial language, helping them understand the weight of the gospel, the weight of what Christ has done. He's saying, before you did this, before you experienced that, you were a slave. But now you've come into Christ, and he's made you free. But now you're choosing to view this message that these Judaizers are proclaiming about you now going back to observing seasons and days and, and months and, and, and years. And, and now you want to put yourself as a slave right back into that? What are you doing? It's, he's saying it's a, it's a different version of the same thing. He's saying you're wanting to go back to a different version of the same thing you were attached to before you found freedom in Christ. He's saying why would you do that? Don't you see the difference he's comparing? He's actually putting on par and saying the same thing about the way that you used to live before you knew God and what the Judaizers are touting as a pathway to God. He's saying they're the same thing. And I need you to see that. I need you to understand that. Because you went from being a slave to a free person. You went from being a child who was wearing this, 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 this toga pretexas that had to walk around with a guardian and now you've been made a free person, you've been adopted, you've now been given that toga virilius, you've now been declared an heir, and now you want to go back and put the child's toga on? 
is it doesn't make sense. Why would you want to go backwards and do that? Because you're doing the same exact thing. As a matter of fact, at that coming of age ceremony that they would have on March 17th, the child would traditionally bring their favorite toy and offer it as sacrifice to the god Apollos. And this was their declaration of putting away childish things, saying, I now am becoming an adult. He's saying, you've already gone through this. You know, just like you did when, you, when your father declared you an adult, now your father God has declared you his son, his daughter, and this message of following the law, this message of trying to earn your salvation through works and through becoming a Jew and following all these Jewish practices, it's like going backwards and resubmitting yourself as a slave all over again. Here's our big idea for today, church, and I want us to get this in our hearts, that freedom through faith in Christ, it hinges on our dependency on the sufficiency of Christ. Man, we need to get that in our heart. Freedom through faith in Christ. Because we say things like, Christ has set us free. And it's true. He has. Amen. Christ has set us free. But your experience of freedom is going to hinge on your dependency on the sufficiency of Christ. Do you really believe Christ is enough? Do you really believe Christ is sufficient? Do you really believe that Christ has paid it all? Because is Christ somehow lacking something that now he needs your help with? Is Christ now consulting humanity to help him out to finish this thing out? Or is it truly he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it? Like, like which is it? That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians. He's like, you, you want to help Jesus out now? <laughs> you know, Jesus passed you, you the baton and said, whoo, man, I ran this race as far as I could. That cross thing, that was rough, boy. Whoo, let me tell you what. So I sure hope you can figure it out from here, buddy. I'm glad you, 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 you trust what I've done. I'm glad you, glad you accept me. But man, it's, it's on you from now. No, it's not. You see, the same thing that brought the freedom in Christ is the same thing that will help us walk out this life for the glory of God, and that is the dependency on the sufficiency of Christ. It is us acknowledging that Christ alone is sufficient and nothing else, and that we can, we can rest in that. It doesn't mean life won't be hard. It doesn't mean everything's going to go our way. It doesn't mean everything's going to be easy, but it means that Christ is enough no matter what happens from this point on. No matter what the world may say, no matter what someone may do to me, no matter what the news says, no matter what the media may try to make me afraid of, Christ is enough. Because the world didn't give me Christ and the world can't take Christ away. And so because I have Christ, he is sufficient. And so therefore, I am lacking nothing and I need nothing apart from Christ to be content because he is more than enough. And if I believe that, it should influence the way I see the world, the way I see the challenges I face, the way I see all of the things that want to try to knock me out. It should change the way I see other people. It should influence the lens in which I see the world. And when things come along that don't line up, when messages come along that don't line up, that the world may say or that people may say or pressures that may be put on me or, or other voices that may come across my path, if it doesn't line up 
with the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ as being the cornerstone, the firm foundation, the rock, then I'm not going to entertain that thing in my life because nothing else should influence my beliefs, my views, my perspective, my emotions. I should stay rooted and grounded in Christ being enough because he is. So I have to remind myself of this because guess what? I do become afraid and anxious. Do you? I do. I just had anxiety yesterday over something stupid. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, and, 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 and I'm sure you've dealt with things this past week. Challenges, difficulties. What am I going to do in the middle of all that? Well, am I looking at Christ as being sufficient? Am I looking at him as being enough? Am I understanding that he has adopted me as a son, as an heir? I'm now a part of the family of God. And that adoption, you've got to understand, man. That adoption doesn't mean second class. That adoption doesn't mean somehow tainted or not as good as another person. No, 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 no. It means that he has chosen me. I am his. He is mine. I can rest knowing that he is enough. Amen, church? So let's read this, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You knew that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not seem to scorn or despise me but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So then what has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. If you've ever heard this uh, thing about the Apostle Paul, like some of you who may have studied Paul extensively, or some of you who have maybe heard a lot of sermons about Paul, you may have heard that uh, a lot of scholars believe that he had like some eye problem right and we're like where did they get that information from like where did they get this idea that paul may have had like issues seeing and things like that and it was from this text here where it says if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me and so the the belief is here or the the, the teaching is that because they're saying hey you guys knew i had this ailment and the solution would have been if you could have given me your eyes you would have and so that's where that comes from, if you've ever wondered. Just a little side, little fun fact. There you go. Maybe it'll help you at Bible trivia sometime, all right? I mean, we're trying to just minister to you at all levels today. <clears throat> Get you ready for Bible trivia. Verse 16, have I then become an enemy by telling you the truth? He said, now that I'm telling you this, you're treating me like an enemy. You're treating me like I've done something wrong, but you used to treat me like I was this angel that came straight from heaven itself and you used to just love me even through my ailments and all my challenges like you guys were willing to do anything for me if, if you could have fixed my problem you would have fixed my problem you loved me that much and now and now because these judaizers who you don't even know they've come in and they've preached this other message that you've bought into and now because of that you're you're treating me like an enemy verse 17 it says they make much of you they're pumping you up, right? They're making you seem like you are incredible. He said, but why are they doing this? It's for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that they may make much of them. He's trying to say, guys, don't you see this? 
Don't you see? They're, they're, they're doing all of this puffing you up and telling you how good you are, but it's really for them. Because ultimately, they're trying to please these Jewish leaders and say, look at how many converts we had. Look at how we've gotten all these people to convert to Judaism and to go through circumcision and to follow the law and to follow all these festivals and holy days. Look at how good of a job we've done. And so they're trying to move up in the Jewish religious system by converting all of these people who are now open to Jesus and who have received Christ. They're thinking, well, now that they've received Christ who was a Jew, well, now let's use that as an opportunity to convert them to Judaism. Because they really thought that becoming a Jew was on par with receiving Christ or, in some instances, even better than faith in Christ. And so they're going over here teaching them this, and they're saying, hey, we're doing this, but they're doing it for a wrong reason. And Paul's pointing it out. He's saying they're doing it for themselves, not for your benefit. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, but not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He's saying, I thought Christ was formed in you. Because if Christ would have been formed in you, you would have seen Christ was more valuable. But now I'm questioning that. He's questioning the legitimacy of their salvation experience. And he's being very forthright with that. He's saying, I feel like I'm back in childbirth. Like, like Paul knows what childbirth is, right? Right? Come on, dads. Like, we don't know. <laughs> we have an idea. We have things we compare it to. But it's probably not the same. Right? Amen, ladies? Amen. Okay. All right. Thank you. Just, just to be clear. Just wanted to get that out of the way. But the, the issue here is that, man, Paul is saying, I thought that this thing that I was expecting to happen, like an expectant mother, and I thought it had been birthed in you. Like I thought you had already received this and it had come to fruition. It had already come to pass like childbirth. He said, but now I feel like it's back in the pangs and the throes of childbirth because I thought it was formed. I thought the baby was here, but apparently the baby's not quite here yet. It's not truly happened like I thought it happened because I believed that you had received it because of how zealous you were for it, how passionate you were for it. And now you so quickly abandoned it and went back. So, man, I don't know if that was actually legit or not. He said, I wish I could be present with you. I'm writing this letter, but, man, I'm just so perplexed about this idea. Paul's chastising the Galatians for going backwards to the childhood toga. Paul's saying these Judaizers' message of their upbringing of not knowing God, it's the same thing. You're trading one form of slavery for a different form. He's perplexed about this. Let's keep reading. And he's trying to help them understand this. So now he's going to pivot over to a Jewish story. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. 
She is our mother, for it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So he's using allegory here. And I want you to write this down, okay? Because this is going to be good for your study later. Because you're all going to take this and study this later, right? Amen? Okay. All right. Just That's what I heard from here. Okay. Genesis 16, 17, and 21. This is a story that he's referencing here. Because God had promised Abram and Sarai, who were well advanced in age, that they were going to have a child because they hadn't had a natural born heir. And Sarah laughs when she hears this because she's like, I'm super old, you know. My time of childbearing is past. There's no way I can have a kid. And I haven't been able to have a kid my entire life. But God promised it. God said it was going to happen. So there's a child of promise. And then because they began to doubt, Sarah said, hey, why don't you uh, sleep with my handmaiden, Hagar, my servant? Maybe she could conceive. And she did. So Abram went, slept with his wife's handmaiden. Next thing you know, Hagar has a son. They're like, oh, yay, look, God, we helped you out. (laughs) Look, God, we have a son now. Uh, God was telling us the truth. And God's like, "Mm mm-mm, that's not the child of promise. Because that's the child of the slave woman. This is not my plan. This is not the the person that's going to be the heir. This is not the person in which the promise is going to come through. And then miraculously, Sarah becomes pregnant and has a child, has Isaac, the son of promise and then from this day forward man even to this day our present day those two children that represent those nations are still warring with one another i mean look at the way that all the surrounding nations of israel all of those countries there's five countries that surround the nation of israel all five of those countries are still at war with israel Isaac, the son of the promise, right? Who had a son, Jacob, and Jacob's name is Israel. This nation, this group of people in which God brought the promise through is still at war because they want to be an heir. They want something that they think belongs to them and they are willing to fight for it and they hate Israel. They don't want peace with Israel. They want to blow Israel off the map. They want them to completely cease to exist because they think that they are the rightful heirs And God's promises are forever settled. They're yes and amen. And so these people are the people of promise in which Jesus, the Savior, the the one who made a way where there was no way. So now all of us who are outside of that family that can't trace our heritage back to Abraham, all of us are now grafted in through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? We've been adopted. We've been brought in. This is how this works. And now we're a part. It says, Galatians 3.29, if you're in Christ, you're Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. You see how all this fits together? And so this allegory here from Genesis 16, 17, and 21, Abraham is representing humanity. Hagar is representing man's attempt to do what only God can do. Ishmael, the child or the result of this unholy union, 
outside of the covenant of marriage. This child that was born with man trying to fix it, man trying to help God out, man trying to do and doubt the sufficiency of God. This child was born and it perverted God's plan because man's results, man's fruit of man's efforts to be in right standing with God always perverts God's plan. Always. Abraham, representing humanity, Sarah, the promised path, and the holy union that seemed impossible. There's no way. She's too old. He's too old. This can't happen. She's already well past childbearing years. Then God brought the possible through the impossible. Isaac, the promised son. Paul was saying, cast out the slave woman. Cast out the Judaizers because it's only going to produce perversions of God's promise and keep you joined to a slave. It's going to keep you joined to that slave mentality as you are thinking like a slave person who's obligated to somehow try to fix this on your own, to somehow earn your freedom on your own. But in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying, stand free. He said, you've been made free. You've got the toga virilius on. You've been adopted. You've been declared an heir. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Don't join yourself to the slavery mentality anymore. You're not a person who is obligated to have to have this guardian over you anymore. You're not a person who doesn't have these rights anymore. You're free in Christ. You are justified, positionally made in right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ because Christ is sufficient. Because what Christ did is enough. You will never be enough by human standards. Christ is enough for you. So now you are declared forgiven and in right standing and free because of faith alone in Christ. That is the gospel. I want you today to rest in the gospel. If you're a person who has received Christ, if you're a person who has put your faith and trust in Christ, I want you to evaluate this morning. Is he enough? Is he sufficient? Am I trusting in his sufficiency? Or am I looking to something else? If you're a person who has not placed your faith in Christ and you have not trusted him, or maybe you're a person who thought you had trusted in Christ, but really you've been trusting in your own works. You've been trying to earn something. You've been trying to qualify yourself for something. You've been trying to be good enough for something. I want you today to take that step of faith. Repent of trusting in your own works, trusting in your own strength. Trusting in you trying to work this karma system because that's not how it works with Jesus. You need to declare today, God, forgive me, Jesus. You are enough. You are enough. The Father, the Father has made a way for you through his Son, Jesus. And through him there is life and life everlasting. Through him there is freedom because he who the Son sets free is free indeed. So don't be joined to the slave woman anymore. 
break free from that. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to your past. You're no longer a slave to trying to earn something from God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark of a life that you've lived. It doesn't matter how far away you think you have run. His grace is sufficient. His mercies are new every morning. He still is extending his kindness to you. That's why you're still on this earth. Because he's still extending his kindness to you. He's still extending his grace to you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. Am I trusting in that as sufficient? If you have not made that declaration, that decision, I would invite you to start in on that journey today. And then I would invite you to do something else. To take a step to let someone know our prayer team's going to be up here at the end of service. And I want you to let one of our prayer team members know. Say, hey, I, I, I've decided to follow Jesus. Or I realized that I wasn't following Jesus the way I thought. But now I, I really understand more clearly what it means to put my faith and trust in him. Let us know that. We want to pray for you. We want to help connect you with someone who can help you walk through the next steps of this journey. And maybe some of those next steps for you, man. Uh, we we want to help you understand some things through scripture. We want you to declare publicly your faith through water baptism. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe some of you here today, you need to take that step. Whatever the case may be, respond. Say yes to whatever it is that God is doing in you. Some of you, maybe you need to spend just a moment. Maybe you don't need to get up and just bolt out of here after service is over. Maybe you need to take a moment and spend, a, spend some time in repentance and in thought and write some things down that the Holy Spirit's maybe working in your heart. Man, I don't know. But what I do know is that every one of us has a step to take. Because none of us in this room need to go, I already know that. I'm just going to mosey on with my life. Because the word has been brought forth to us today. And it's sharpening us. And it's helping us to grow. Maybe you're a person that just needs to say, Man, Jesus, I have not been depending on you and treating you as sufficient. We all can grow in that. So, Father, help us. Help us grow today. Help us respond. Help us trust. Help us to live our lives in a way that's going to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.